Uh, I'm honoured to be here. Um, and I want to speak about how disabilities should be celebrated for their differences, because those differences are the extreme versions of the human condition, and how this can impact all of our lives. The human condition is not perfect, and in our efforts to optimise almost everything, we more and more create a world for the average person. But what is average is always changing, and therefore there can never really be an average. And so the world needs to constantly change to accommodate this perceived average. But it may not have to. If we look to the right sources to help us to understand ourselves and how we change, then we can build a world that accommodates how we change in advance of those changes occurring. People with disabilities have superpowers, have a unique insight into problems in a frequency that is multiples of what the average person will experience every day of their lives. This means that we are constantly engaged in solving hard problems and constantly planning ahead for eventualities in a world which is in many cases uncertain. And this process is not something that is engaged in as much totality by the average person. But for people with disabilities, it is a constant and unrelenting process that cannot be put to one side or you will suffer the consequences. So it's probably fair to say that people with disabilities are some of the best forward planners and problem solvers in our society. This is our superpower. The problem is that because disability is the focus, the individual's strengths are perhaps not noticed because of their condition. We think that we should figure out how to help people with disabilities instead of thinking how can they help us. And there are a few reasons for this in my opinion. Few people who are able-bodied will believe that a disabled person will have insight in how to help them. And people with disabilities who do things or manage to live their lives are referred to as brave and inspiring, when in reality all we're really doing is problem-solving and you know, planning in order to live our lives and have experiences that should be there for everyone. In some circumstances, again, though, it is very much about survival and getting through the next day. Imagine bringing to bear this superpower on the toughest problems we face every day. So I would encourage governments, companies and employers to understand that you have a unique opportunity in engaging people with disabilities in work, problem solving and in resolving societal issues not just because it's a mandatory obligation or is considered best practice or paints you in a good light as a compassionate entity for engaging people with disabilities, but because they're probably the best problem solvers and planners you could have in your organizations. So I want to use our short time today together to talk about cognitive bias, particularly fixation and its place in creative problem solving. I want to give you an example of how difficult it is to overcome fixation. So in the image up here, many of us in the audience today may see a clip on the right-hand side, and that clip's purpose is really to hold paper together, and that's as far as our imagination can stretch. That's very similar to how a business leader behaves that we've seen on trying to solve problems. They see a simple function for a solution and can't think past that. But there are people in the audience who don't deal with what's called functional fixedness, and they actually can't see past a paperclip and see other applications for that paperclip. And that's what I want to talk about. So a quick example of what functional fixes is, is people being able to, uh, sorry, is, is functional fixes goes hand in hand with what's called the curse of knowledge, in which people become so familiar with something that they can't unlearn traditional properties to look at it from a fresh, untrained eye. So thoughts become so effortless that stereotypes naturally form and the unconscious has no room left for creativity. 
The principle of functional fixedness was originally coined in 1945 by Carl Dunker. Dunker gave participants a candle, a box of tacks, and some matches. And the challenge he gave the participants in the room was to attach the candle to a wall and come up with the best way of doing that without letting wax drip onto a table. And what Dunker found in the experiments, the majority of people lit the, light, sorry, lit the side of the candle and stuck the candle to the wall and wax dripped onto the table. Or they decided to tack the candle to the wall using the tacks they were given and wax dripped onto the table. But very few participants actually used the box in which the tacks were held in to actually attach the candle to the wall. In a later study by Dunker, what he found was if he actually took the tax out of the box and gave the participants all the same properties, the box, the tax, the candles, and, and the candles and the, and, the, and the matches, they were actually more inclined to attach the candle to the wall using the box because they were able to disassociate themselves from the properties that were there in front of them. Another great example of overcoming fictional, uh, functional fixes, which is incredibly important, is the US Army training cadets in the US Army. So cadets are trained in what's called the reverse direction of attention. So when entering a new environment, cadets are deliberately trained to look from right to left, not from the stereotypical left to right. And why is that important? It contradicts their instinctive left to right recognition pattern that we learn, well, the majority of us learn as kids through Latin-based languages. And what that allows cadets to do is enter new environments more cognitively aware of what's happening in front of them, be able to identify anomalies or be identif identify enemies or obstacles because they're more heightened to actually force themselves to look in a different direction. So as creative people, we're non-conformative, meaning fixes is not, or at least it shouldn't be in our true nature. However, a lack of fixes as designers isn't necessarily a good thing. We do need to actually apply fixes in our design. The reason for that is, as designers and technologists, we must be cognizant to what's called the principle of least astonishment. And this is effectively a rule of thumb that states that user interface work best when people first encounter them and they know what to do. Hi, it's Anna D here. I'm founder and curator of InspireFest. Welcome to Real Humans. This year, we wanted to do something a little unexpected, so we set up a booth backstage at InspireFest. All we had in that booth was a microphone and a series of cards that could be turned over to reveal a question. After they gave their talk and left the main stage, our speakers went into the booth, chose questions at random, and they ended up sharing lots of interesting stories and ideas with us. We wanted to create something that would give you a better idea of the human side of our speakers rather than just the technology, science and innovations that they talk about on stage. So we really hope you enjoy the results. It was something very new for us and a place that is not afraid to try new things is the Digital Hub, our supporters for the podcast series. The Digital Hub is in the Liberties in the heart of Dublin City in Ireland. It's a collaborative space and it's home to lots of technology and digital media companies. But it's more than just an office. You can visit thedigitalhub.com to find out more. Now let's run this experiment.
All right, so the cards are there with your questions on them. The microphone's running, and I'm going to leave you to it. Tell me who you are and what you do. So uh, my name is Noel Joyce. I'm head of design at Hacks, a hardware startup accelerator based in Shenzhen in China. Um, previous to that, I had my own startups, um, which were design-led and related. Um, and I've worked with maybe 250 to 300 startups in the last seven years of all shapes and sizes, doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and it's, it's really, really hard work, but it's really, really enjoyable and rewarding. Why do you do what you do? Uh, probably because I don't know any better. Um, if, if I knew half the stuff that was gonna happen and the struggles that were going to occur as a result of what I do, then I probably wouldn't do them. So it's probably just blind idiocy. What do you wish you'd known when you were starting out? Um, I wish I'd known better. Um, I wish that maybe uh, there was uh, more support from the perspective that people believe in, in, in what you're talking about and ideas that you have. But I suppose if everyone believed and understood that, then, you know, you wouldn't come up with anything special. So um, that's probably like not really a great answer. But if that kind of thing happened more, then it probably moves faster. But I mean, that's that's the nature of this kind of work that we do. What are you not good at? Uh, well, if the the talk I just did is anything to go by, it's public speaking. Um, also, I'm probably not good at, um, which I'm trying to address more recently, is uh, sort of, you know, sort of when the facts change, change your mind kind of situations. Um, because I like, I take the hard line when, when, when I've made a decision, but that, that needs to change. Tell me about a time you used data or evidence to make a decision. Okay, this is good. Um, so the talk I just did, we talked at the end, I talked about how we gathered data in relation to the condition of footpaths um, in our local area, which we gave to our local authorities who had to fix the footpaths as a result. So it was data or evidence that I gathered and it made me make a decision to take the people to task who should have been in charge of doing this work. Um, and it was irrefutable data and evidence as well. So I think that um, the way the world is now and we're more data driven and you know, with AI and machine learning, it's about finding true value in those things to sort of create accountability, not just gather data for the sake of gathering data. So that was a definitely a great, um, uh, example of uh, data that that you know gave me gave me the power to make a decision to push people who who needed to be pushed. Tell me about any turning points in your life. Um, every time I put my hand on these wheels, I turn them. So there are always turning points in my life. I uh, know, just kidding. Um, turning points in my life when I ended up having my accident and ended up in a wheelchair. Um, that that's a huge turning point. Um, because you effectively, effectively end up with zero. I lost everything at that point. I lost my ability to walk. I was a soldier before I had my accident. I couldn't do that job anymore. 
um, and um, I, I my personal relationship that I had at the time uh, disintegrated as well. So I ended up like at, at essentially zero again and trying to pick things up. But sometimes you have to look at those things as um, maybe there was a there was a hard stop for a good reason. Um, and and I think that even talking today to this microphone, I wouldn't be doing this today only for I had that accident. So, um, you know, the cliche, every, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. I think it, it can be true sometimes. What do you do when you need to reboot, reboot or get inspired? Um, I think uh, things like this, um, this event, InspireFest, is pretty incredible sort of thing to sort of refresh yourself and, and, and think more about what else is going on out there and meet new people. But also, I think um, it's very important to uh, go where birds sing and, and, and where there's trees and stuff like that, because um, to sort of reconnect with, um, reconnect viscerally with things that are bigger than work. What's the novel play, poem or song that's had the most impact on you? Okay, so I'm a huge metalhead, um, and recently it's been a band called Lamb of God, and um, I think that um, one one of the one of the songs is on heavy rotation for me at the moment is a song called Nightmare Seeker, um, which I don't want to go into detail about what it's about, but you can you can check it out. But it it sort of resonates with me on a lot of things about maybe uh, how sometimes people that are put in a position to, to do to do something they may not enjoy doing end up having to do it and and a description of what their their lives are like tell me something that most people wouldn't know about you well if you can't see me you wouldn't know i'm in a wheelchair um also that probably that i that i was in the military and served six months in liberia um, maybe it's it's an interesting story and someday we'll talk talk more about that. What is the biggest misconception people have about the work you do? Um, I think the biggest misconception, depending on, on which work it is we're talking about, but say, for example, when we look at the footpath issue, is how powerful that information can be um, and how it creates a scenario of a positive pressure that gets something done. And I think the misconception is often that because someone has a disability, they maybe are not able to drive those ideas forward and not able to drive home, uh, drive home uh, information that holds people accountable um, and because they have to concentrate on other things in life. So I think uh, be aware of people with disabilities and determination because they're, they're out there to do something great for the world and themselves. Okay, that's it. Thank you. Uh, so my name is Kirk Donu. I'm the uh, I'm the CEO founder of Solvers, and Solvers is a new type of product development agency in which we um, we take raw concepts in in the rawest form and we bring them through a program of work called a solution acceleration, where we help to really establish what the problem statement is. We use many different types of innovation techniques to um, really define that problem. Um, and then once we've landed on the actual problem statement and what the uh, the, the problem is, we, we set out with a couple of key activities to go out and solve that problem. What do you wish you'd know when you were starting out? Um, so I, I wish I knew it was okay to be different. It was okay to be a contrarian. 
that actually being different and being a contrarian and seeing the world a little bit differently would actually help me um, assess the world through an original eye, an original lens. Um, I wish it was, I knew that it was so hard, obviously. Um, it's incredibly difficult to start a company, uh, more difficult than anyone realises, hence why over 90% of companies fail, um, and that it's okay to make mistakes along the way. Um, and I wish I knew that it's okay to be awkward too, that it's okay to create awkward scenarios or environments when you're um, when you're challenging something because with the awkwardness becomes a different way of thinking. Um, so yeah, yeah, a couple of things. And then I suppose lastly, the I wish I knew um, when I was starting out that it was really important to actually instill boredom into everything that you do and that you shouldn't try to be busy for every single hour of the day because when you're busy, no original or creative thoughts come to you and boredom is where some of the original creative problem solving actually comes so um yeah cool so why do you do what you do um yeah the reason i do what i do is because i'm i'm quite tired of mediocre poor products that exist in the world that don't actually serve a problem um we continuously ask ourselves what problem are we trying to solve and is that problem worth solving and just reminding ourselves of that statement or that question goes a long way. So many people out there have an idea which isn't actually trying to solve a problem. It's just an idea looking for a problem. Yeah. In a parallel universe, what is your career? Um, so, yeah, um, I love behavioral science. It's, it's very close to what we do already, but in many ways so different. And... I don't have enough time to study behavioral science or, or, or you know, study the true psychology behind why we do what we do and, and how we should solve profound problems that are rooted in cognitive science. But if I had the opportunity, if I could start my career over again, I would love to go on to be a, to be a psychologist. And, and actually, yeah, I still love what I do. I still love design, but I feel that, you know, we can never really truly design great solutions without understanding the human their decisions are there to serve. So yeah, so absolutely parallel universe would love to be a psychologist. What was the last time you failed and how did you respond? Um, so I've spent a long time in university. I think I've spent um, the guts of seven years. Um, so I, I don't generally like the word failed for the stereotypical reason that they're all great learnings. Some of them are more expensive learnings than others. Um, and there's a lot of cliche terms out there around failing fast and failing smart. I think it's really important that um, you're committed and you go after something and recognize there's failures throughout and along the way, but you try to be resilient and, and, and get past them. But, you know, from an educational standpoint, I'm a, I'm a, I suppose you could, you could call me a failed scientist. Um, I studied environmental plant science uh, as an undergrad, and then I went on to actually study law um, and I did a master's in law and then um, and then a postgraduate diploma in, in environmental law. Uh, and then I went on to do a postgraduate diploma in data science. Um, and only when I was given a task as part of um, my, uh, a company I used to work for to design a website um, or work with an agency to design a website, did I fall in love with design and fall in love with the power of design. and. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, you could regard my education in many ways as being a failure. I think it's definitely created a, a bastardized um, 
way of thinking, um, which has worked in my favour an awful lot. But um, yeah, I think uh, education has been a bit challenging for me. What are you not good at? Oh, this is an easy one. Um, saying no. I've got a pretty hard time saying no to helping people. Um, it's absolutely part of my nature. I, I've tried to correct it because, you know, uh, what often happens is you become way too thin on time and you can't help everyone and then you end up doing a, a, a worse job in the end instead of directing people uh, down the right path to somebody who can help them. But yeah, it's, uh, it, I've got a real hard problem saying no to things. What's the last thing you really geeked out about? Um, so yeah, this talk, this talk for Inspirefest, I, I, I was able to go deep into behavioural science and, and cognitive bias and, and look at the various principles behind fixation and what drives fixation in people, which was incredibly interesting for me. Um, probably not delivered the way I wanted it to be delivered, but certainly interesting for me and I, I got a lot out of it and I, I got to fully understand some of the constraints that people have when trying to problem solve. Um, and some people's fixation around not being able to give up on an idea that they had and, and their bias driving them to a solution. Um, and yeah, how, how people can overcome biases. Um, so it's, it's, it's been a fascinating um, learning over the last week or so, just studying up on that and, and definitely something that I can bring to my day-to-day -day job again and, and actually help me be a little bit more, um, you know, diplomatic, but also assertive at many times with, with some of the business leaders and partners that we're working with around how they should approach the problem that they're trying to solve and, and how should, they should approach it with more of an open mind and let the data do the talking and let the user feedback and, and the customers that they're trying to serve for do the talking as well. So that's been, a, it's been pretty cool. What's the novel play, poem or song that's had the most impact on you? Um, yeah, so um, it's definitely my wedding song. So um, Marta uh, by Tom Waits. I just love the song so much because it, it just, it's all about recourse or, or correcting wrong and, and never giving up or never saying it's too late to be able to apologize or reach out to someone from your past and to, um, yeah, to reconnect and rekindle a love or a friendship or whatever else. So give me one really great tip on anything. Um, yeah, so I say this to our to our to some of our junior members of our team all the time. It's really important to to challenge people's opinions and decisions and topics and talks um, and not take things for face value. I've found throughout my career that the more I challenge and the more I um, the more I debate something with someone, the more I learn and try to understand what it is they're trying to say. Whereas you sit back and you're you're nonchalant about what somebody's saying. I think you can you can miss the point or miss miss what they're trying to get across. And and certainly something that I wish I had done in university, where I I challenge our lecturers more and I challenge their opinion. You know, not everybody is right about everything, and and I think it's a great way of learning. So um, the tip I'd give is is challenge, listen attentively, and and try to challenge what they're saying and dispute what they're saying. That was recorded at our fifth birthday of Inspirefest in Dublin. We'll be back next year with a new and improved event on May 21st and 22nd. Tickets are still available and we wanted to offer a little discount code to our listeners. So simply go to inspirefest.com, click on buy tickets and enter the promo code HUMANS2020. That's a promo code of HUMANS2020. Thanks to all our speakers who took part in Real Humans and to our ACE team of producers at Bureau. 
for more about Bureau, you can go to akabureau.com. Thanks for listening.